Good morning. I'm Helena Gaspard from the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. Together with our partners, Canada 2020 and Global Progress, we launched the Recovery Project. The Recovery Project is about thinking ahead to the opportunities and challenges beyond the emergency response to the pandemic. It's about bringing forward a variety of perspectives and ideas to reinvigorate economies, enhance institutions, and make better policy choices. The COVID-19 pandemic has stressed international relations on various fronts. With global connections of people, economies, and politics, our best hope for recovery will be driven by revitalized global connections with the support of sound institutions. For this conversation, we're honored to be joined by two distinguished guests. The Right Honourable Paul Martin was Prime Minister of Canada from 2003 to 2006. As Minister of Finance, he managed a national debt crisis, setting the country's debt-to-GDP ratio on a downward track and recorded a series of budgetary surpluses. The Right Honourable Gordon Brown served as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 2007 to 2010. He is one of the UK's longest-serving Chancellors of the Exchequer, and in that role, Mr. Brown architected various social policies, helping to reshape the welfare state. Both of our distinguished guests share a common commitment to multilateralism that extends well beyond their times in public office. Their continued service and analysis of global affairs will help us to unpack the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead for international recovery and the need for international cooperation. Welcome. Mr. Brown, let's begin um, Let's begin on, on your express need for support uh, to various countries in addressing the health crisis of COVID-19 before we can even think about economic recovery. Can you help us understand how to go about this? You know, what are some of the lasting ways countries can offer support when they have such fundamentally different capacities and structures in health and governance? Well, let me say, first of all, it's a real pleasure to be uh, doing this with Paul Martin. He's been a great friend of mine, a great servant, not just of Canada, but of the international community. And I've always looked to him for advice when I've been a finance minister and a prime minister. And what he says uh, carries huge weight across the, the world. And I think Paul would agree with me that we're dealing with a global problem that requires a global solution. What's interesting is that most governments are seeing this as national problems uh, that require national solutions. And yet to eradicate this virus, you need to do it in every country and in every continent. To be able to prevent a second round of the disease uh, coming out of Africa or coming out of one of the poorest countries because they've got inadequate health systems, you need to help them avoid uh, this uh, uh, contagion uh, spreading. To be able to build capacity in testing equipment and to build capacity in, for example, ventilators or even protective health equipment, you can't just have people competing against each other around the world for the same amount of supply. You've got to increase globally the amount of supply. So for all these reasons, you need a global approach to this problem. And what's disappointing at the moment is we have America first, we've got Russia first, we've got China first, we've got India first, Turkey first, and the movement of nationalism around, around the world, go it alone uh, policies, has become too uh, characteristic of our age. So I feel that what we've got to do is persuade people issue by issue about where cooperation is essential. And I think even the most ardent nationalists would understand that to get a global vaccine, you've got to act uh, in uh, a way that can make it available in every country and every continent, and you've got to cooperate to build capacity. You've got to cooperate 
to deal with the problem that could come out of countries that are too poor to be able to protect themselves against this disease. You've got to help them, so you've got to cooperate. So these are the arguments for cooperation, and these are the areas, I think, where cooperation could be strengthened over the next few weeks. Absolutely. So that importance of global focus, certainly cooperation, um, but also an outward perspective on health. And Mr. Martin, you've you've spoken to this, um, the need to look at pandemics and certainly also at the environment, because the two, you know, are, are linked and they are absolutely expensive in both human and financial terms to begin to address. So picking up on Mr. Brown's point, where would you orient and how do you orient those inter- international actions? Well, let me first respond to what what Gordon says. It's it is this is a, it is a wonderful thing to to be able to appear with him today. We are we are as you mentioned old friends, but this and this is just very much like the like the old days. I could not agree more with everything that Gordon said in beginning. So just to pick up from there, uh, the question that you're asking is how do you encourage collaborative action, international action? Um, and the answer, from my point of view, is you start with what you have. And in this case, it's the G20, which has the most experience and is made up of the major global and regional powers. How do you encourage international action? You do so by making it very clear that without collective action, solutions will be impossible to attain for everybody. Let me remind us all that this is primarily a health problem. And until there's a vaccine or at least a successful treatment, there will be no firm answer to the financial issues which people raise. Once we have a vaccine, however, it will only be a matter of time that for the wealthier nations, financial financial integrity will be confirmed. Now, in terms of the developing countries, that is to say, many of the smaller economies, it's going to be more difficult. And for this reason, I would simply make one point, and that is that there should be no demand for immediate repayment of existing debt back to their creditors. In in fact, one might well argue that some of that debt should not be forgiven. But you can't ask a smaller country to pick up the huge burden that that the the virus is imposing upon them and then have them immediately repaying some of the debt that they have incurred recently. COVID-19 is a human tragedy. It's probably the biggest of our lifetime apart from World War II, and it has to be treated as such. Thank you. Well, I think Paul's absolutely right. You know, um, what we've got to do is get the international machinery working so that we can pay for the global vaccine, so that we can coordinate on supply of uh, goods that are necessary for medical equipment, so that we can help poorer countries uh, protect themselves against the virus. The first and most immediate way of doing that is, as Paul says, to release the money that they would have been paying in debt um, servicing payments. It's about 85 million uh, over the next uh, year and a half, and allow these countries to spend that on health. At the moment, most African countries are spending more on debt interest payments than on health itself. And unless they can actually spend on health, they're not going to be able to protect themselves. Then I think we need the grant and lending ceilings of the IMF and the World Bank to be raised. Uh, because this is uh, a major uh, international incident. I mean, seven trillion has been uh, pledged in loans or in grants by the rich countries to protect themselves against this. Uh, we're nothing near that when it comes to what the IMF and World Bank can do unless we increase the lending and grant ceilings. And there's been a proposal to create um, special drawing rights, which is basically the international money that is created by Uh, the decision of world leaders. And I think uh, that could be increased by something in the order of 500 
billion in the next uh, few weeks or months and over a period of three or four years by something like a trillion. So things can be done by the international community, but it does come back to what Paul said. The G20 was actually created by Paul as a finance minister's group in the uh, turn of the century. Uh, we helped make it a, a leader's group, uh, Paul's uh, recommendation actually, and did so in 2008-9. And we did hold the London summit in April 2009, which uh, underpinned the recovery of the world economy. And I think people would accept now that it made a difference. The problem is that we need uh, some countries to lead this process. And whether it's America or whether it's Europe, whether it's uh, Canada and the other members of the G7 coming together, uh, countries need to lead this process. Saudi is the chair at the moment. They want to do things. But the G20 does need uh, countries saying, look, here are the areas where you can make a difference. Let's meet and go through this agenda. Let's make decisions on debt relief and other things. Uh, the IMF and World Bank can't do it on its own because they are reliant on their shareholders. So some world leaders have really got to make an impact, as to some extent they did a few days ago when they had a global pledging conference on health, which Justin Trudeau uh, very uh, uh, ably uh, contributed to and, uh, and pledged money from Canada. So, Mr. Brown and Mr. Martin, let's pick up on that, right? We need a vaccine. We need global leadership. And the G20 is a fantastic platform um, to begin um, that kind of action. But, Mr. Brown, you mentioned the importance of having a few you know, key countries taking the lead. And I'm wondering if I might be able to hear from one or both of you on how, um, you know, shifting roles uh, in, in the world, you know, say... China's increasing role versus perhaps the United States' less traditional role at these times, how that might influence multilateral relations and certainly the way forward. Well, this goes back to why I think that the G20 is important. I mean, there are going to be leaders. Gordon's been a leader. This is the, the petition that he, is, that he has spawned is, going to have, is having huge influence. But the fact of the matter is the G20 was created for this exactly for this kind of for this kind of purpose, and we are you're not only thinking about the two superpowers, uh, not neither one of which is acting like a superpower um, at the pres at the present time, but you've got countries like India coming up, which eventually will have a population larger than China's. You've got Africa, which when as when it creates its its uh, uh, its free market. Uh, will be the youngest population and the largest population. I'm looking ahead 20 or 30 years. And let's not kid ourselves. These kinds of international issues that we're dealing with here right now are going to be much more the rule, not the exception. And so that, yes, I think that we've got to reach out to these ki this kind of leadership. People like Gordon have got to play the role that they are playing. But we have to have a structure. We have to have a structure that will make the world understand that sovereignty can uh, in in the case of crises, sovereignty will be lost unless it is shared uh, and has common goals. So that I I really do believe that, that, that what we should really do is to use as uh, COVID uh, nineteen as a means to put in place the kind of structures that the world is going to need going ahead, and every single one of them is going to be structures that will allow countries to work together. I think Paul's absolutely right. I think you could be easily discouraged by the fact that uh, you've got America first, China first, and so on. There has been a bout of uh, nationalism and, uh, to some extent, isolationism. And you could be discouraged by the fact that you've got a tension between China and America over trade, and that's spilling over into everything, including about the responsibility for this uh, virus. 
And you could also be discouraged by the fact that Europe seems divided because um, at the moment it's not even sure about how it can come to an agreement about how it deals with the crisis and the economic repercussions themselves. But when we had to deal with this in 2008-9, we were uh, in a situation where, first of all, a number of countries did not want to have the leaders G20. They were not enthusiastic about it. Some were saying, let's just keep the G7. But Paul and I would have always argued that you can't disengage from China and India and Africa, who are going to play a significant part in the world economy in the future, and even then were important to the solution to the crisis. We had an argument about which countries. And actually, when we had the first meeting, it was G24, because 24 countries arrived, although we called it the G20. Uh, The Chinese wanted a particular remit. The Americans wanted another remit. The French had their own ideas. But you've just got to keep battling away and think that the gains in the broader sense of people working together are far more important than the individual tensions that exist. And when you're dealing with a global crisis uh, in medicine where you have no uh, vaccine, uh, where you've got to bump up capacity, where you've got to prevent the disease going into more countries and therefore bounding back to hit you a second and third time, then the gains from uh, whatever cooperation you can are bound to be greater than simply giving up on this. So I think despite all the tensions that exist in the world today, we have got to work at it. I think we've got, as Paul says, to have better structures of decision-making. You can't rely on the international institutions themselves because they depend on the leadership that is provided by those people who represent the biggest countries, Uh, and the biggest uh, continents, obviously. And so I think uh, this is indeed, as Paul says, a test case. Can we make the response to the virus, not just in medical terms only, but in economic terms, because we have an economic recession, uh, more effective by proving that we are better working together than simply working on our own? So there's definitely, from what I'm hearing from you, crisis can be an opportunity for action and that there are crucial gains in collaboration um, to be had and to be made, especially when we're facing a global crisis. Um, the G20 is a fantastic platform for these types of engagements and for you know these types of um, networks and, and conversations. But can you speak to um, whether you think other forums for action are needed, other tools for actions are, are needed, or can we work within the G20, with the IMF, with the UN, with the World Bank? Tell us where you um, see this global collaboration, how you see it moving forward. Well, don't, don't forget, the G20 was created um, so that uh, the, the, the countries that make it up, and, and these are countries that that are not the G7, and it's important, some of the number of G7 members, but it's very important, that's what Gordon has pointed out, there's a much wider membership from, as well from other parts of the world where we're not represented. You've got to remember that South America is not in the G7. You've got to, uh, the uh, many of the Asian countries, such as Korea, for instance, which are incredibly important, and India, uh, were, uh, were not in the G7, not to, not to not to forget, not to forget China. But let me just deal with one organization in this particular dis- discussion. And this is why the petition that Gordon Brown sim- uh, uh, started, which I think is what has led to this discussion, is the WHO, the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization is going to play a crucial role uh, as, as we go ahead. It has been consistently underfunded. Um, and uh, it has done very well despite that underfunding. But when you begin to take a look at the kinds of issues that 
we are going to have to deal with. Think, just think, think about some of the ones you will, you might not think about. Um, one, one of the things that happened in the United States is when they were able to turn to the car industry and say to the car industry, we'd like you, um, to start see if you can making, uh, uh, respirators, uh, and make some of, some of the equipment that, that we don't have. They turned to other companies to see if they can start to make these. We cannot predict what the next pandemic may be. We just certainly didn't predict, predict this one. And what that really means is you're not going to know what kind of equipment is required and what the World Health Organization can do if it is, if, if the major countries cooperate with it is to essentially begin now to see if the private sector, private sector manufacturers can act in times of crisis, can basically turn around their assembly lines, can turn around their supply lines to provide these kinds of, these kinds of equipment. What is the tragedy today? The tragedy today is certainly within the United States, and we have the same problem in Canada, that there is a huge shortage of the kinds of things that can save lives. And it's understandable to a certain extent because nobody predicted this particular kind of virus, but that's what the future is going to be like. And so I really do believe that it is the G20 is crucially important. But your other question was, how does it work with, with other institutions? One of those institutions that cannot be forgotten, and we, we know that some people uh, in office today would like to forget them, we cannot let the WHO be set aside. Well, again, I, I agree with what Paul's saying. I think it's important to recognize that when we're thinking of um, global problems that will require global action in future, we have got to recognize that good as the G20 can be, there's a whole area of environmental uh, uh, governance and decision-making that is really not properly covered by the existing institutions. We've got the United Nations Environment Program, we've got the COP20, and, and so the COP program, we've got the Paris Treaty. But the way we make decisions on the environment is not really one that I think you can commend as being the best way forward. When it comes to tax, uh, where there are tax havens that need to be isolated uh, and, and changed, again, we don't have a proper way of making these de decisions. We're seeing the breakdown of some of the nuclear weapons cooperation that we had in the past uh, with the Non-Proliferation Act under review at the moment. Uh, but again, I think the decision-making there is going to have to be uh, improved. And Paul is rightly talking about the World Health Organization. It's come under so much criticism that I think we forget that if it didn't exist, it would have to be created. Because you need a public health body that has a global remit, that can exchange information and, and data, uh, that can manage uh, crises and report to people about what uh, is happening and what needs to be done, and of course that can lead the search for the vaccine that Paul has talked about and for the build-up capacity and to search for new manufacturers, and, and of course can help poor countries develop their own health systems. And so I see the World Health Organization more as a network of networks. You've got amazing cooperation, including from America and China, of scientists, of health experts, of paramedic, of medics, sorry, of virologists, of epidemiologists, of statisticians. Uh, and what we need, of course, is to make the governmental cooperation more effective, to raise the money that's necessary, but also to cement uh, the links that are built up between the, uh, if you like, the non-political bodies in, in many, many countries who want to work together. So the G20 is one part of the cooperative uh, system that we need to develop in the world. It ought, of course, to be consulting uh, countries that are outside the G20 perhaps more effectively than it does. 
It probably needs an executive to make it more effective uh, than it has been uh, in between uh, meetings. Uh, and certainly, uh, it, it needs now to have a bit of executive action to implement its decisions. Uh, but there's a whole range of institutions that I think, including the World Health Organization, that we should be understanding, contribute to uh, a world where, yes, there are global problems uh, that maybe uh, can be dealt with at a bilateral or a regional level in some cases. But when it comes to um, a pandemic or when it comes to environmental pollution, when it comes to the state of the oceans, when it comes to nuclear proliferation, when it comes to tax havens, you do need global organization to deal with these problems. You know, every discussion that occurs within the business world or occurs between economists is we talk about data. Data has taken on a whole new connotation uh, in as, as digitization has taken, has taken over. But the fact is that in terms of threatening pandemics, of new pandemics, there is no body that has the global data. There is no body that knows what every laboratory is, is working on, what every country is working on. And the fact of the matter is, we, there's this talk about there has to be mandatory notification if there is a problem. Well, if you had scientists, the scientists around the world were all gathered together under one auspices, at, doing their work in their own countries, all doing it separately, but that there was one auspices that was responsible for the gathering of data, not, not data for the purposes of making money. Uh, from it, the data for the purposes of having it, which exists in almost every other field. And that's what the, that's what the WHO could do. Just think what would have happened if, in fact, that there had been WHO scientists working in China at the time that this occurred. Um, there would have been no problems about notification because it would have known, it would have been known through the, the scientific world. And essentially what we're doing is we're trying to address, uh, you know, the, the, this century's problems with the last, last century's instruments, and that's not going to work. I think the message there is well heard that um, a different type of cooperation at multiple levels on a host of issues is absolutely necessary, especially as we're facing increasingly complex problems. Um, I, I, I want to, to bring us to the question of debt, because as, as former prime ministers and also as former long-serving ministers of finance, I would be remiss not to ask you the question of how uh, you begin to wrap your head around this kind of debt crisis that's going to have global ramifications. And so, Mr. Martin, perhaps uh, from a Canadian perspective, can you tell us what it's like um, to face this scale of a debt crisis at home? What tools, um, you know, were, were at your disposal or would be at the disposable at the disposal? Excuse me, of a minister of finance. And what Canadians might expect to see in the months ahead? Well, there's a fundamental difference between the debt that Canada dealt with in the 90s, which was incurred over a long history, and the debt that we see ahead of us today, um, which is, has been created by an unanticipated event. Uh, there are, but there are some similarities in the way we can eliminate both kinds of debt, despite the differences in their creation. What we did in the 90s was that we explained to the Canadian people what was going on and what we needed to do, and then we did it. And it was that kind of openness that did it for us. And that kind of openness, I say quite openly, <laughs> quite openly, is that the is what the current government is showing now. Uh, I think it is, and I not just in Canada, but in other countries. But when the prime minister goes out every single day and talks to the Canadian people, when the minister of finance is going around talking about this issue and the issue that you've just raised, then what happens is that people are people are prepared. What 
the, the, the current government is, is trying to establish a structure and a timeline as best as they can during this crisis, one that will continue into the recovery. But we really have to understand that the increasing growth of this debt will stop only once we've found a vaccine or a treatment. Um, this is not the 2008 financial crisis, which, in fact, which Gordon basically decided how it would be dealt with and did, did very well did very well did when we get the vaccine however and when we have the kinds of treatment that will help people then the government is going to be able to stop the suite of temporary programs from being made per permanent so this is not a debt built up over a 20 or 30 year period as canada has it is a debt that has occurred because there's a whole suite of programs that, are, that have got to be put in place because people have been told they have to leave their jobs when the vaccine is found or when the treatment is found, those people will be able to take back their jobs. Those programs will not be continued. Um, and I believe that we will then go into the long-term recovery because what you're going to have is economic growth as long as it is greater than the interest rates at the time will deal with the, the indebtedness that has been created. That's been history, and there's no reason why that will not happen today. And that is why we should not be afraid to spend whatever we have to, to deal with the human tragedy we're living through. Mr. Brown, to pick up um, on some of your opening comments on the issue of um, relieving debt servicing requirements um, and, and raising grant and lending ceilings, can you unpack for us from a developing country perspective what you think might be needed looking um, ahead to recovery? Yeah, I, I think I would agree with what Paul said about the, the way we approach this uh, crisis, and it means uh, it, it affects the way we approach debt relief for the poorest countries. That we're, It's not like 2008-9. We're dealing with a medical emergency that is causing an economic emergency. And to solve the economic emergency, we first to solve the medical emergency. So we have got to get uh, the vaccine, and if we can't get the vaccine in time, we've got to get the testing, and we've got to make sure that people... Uh, can get back to work and feel that uh, whatever contact they have with people is safe and it's uh, not going to lead to a second round of the virus. And then, of course, we can get back to growth. And if we can get back to growth at a level that is higher than inflation and interest rates, of course, uh, we can get the debt and deficits down. As far as the poorest countries are concerned, they don't have the fiscal space. One of the problems that they have is that they are not in a position either to borrow substantially from the marketplace nor are they in a position to create more uh, revenues of their own or to spend money without having revenues. So debt relief is important in that context. It's one of the ways we can create extra money for these uh, countries. We can do it quickly, of course, by just suspending debt interest payments now. And therefore, it is probably the most immediate way we can help countries that are in difficulty. I've been following what's happening in Africa. If you look at an outbreak that's happening in Kibera in Kenya, a country I know well, you can see just what the devastating effects when you have people living in crowded accommodation together who can't social distance, hand washing difficult, supply of water is not there. Uh, and of course, uh, they've got to go to work because otherwise they would be hungry because there's no social safety net. So we have to do something to help these countries build up their healthcare systems. And one of the ways is the debt relief that we're proposing at the moment. Thank you for that. To, to help us wrap up here, what lessons would you leave with today's national leaders? I'll leave that to Paul first because he's got far more experience than I have. <laughs> 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 uh, 
<laughs> that's pretty good. But that's pretty good, Gordon. I uh, but I, I I I would love to begin. Just so that we you can um, you can end you can you can bring this to an end. Um, the most important lesson that has to come out of come out of this, obviously, the importance of the WHO, the need to deal with. Uh, the emerging economies the need to deal with the incredible poverty that Gordon has just described in um, in Africa. But there is another lesson for us, and that is that important as the sovereignty of nations is, unless that sovereignty is shared in the areas where no country can succeed alone, then sovereignty will be lost for all. Quite simply, we have to work together. There is no other choice. Collective action strengthens sovereignty. It doesn't weaken it. What weakens sovereignty is when countries go off in eight directions at once that they refuse to cooperate. And that we have learned time and time again in our history. And surely to God, now we're going through COVID-19. We, we must not repair. We must not repeat that, that, that history. And I know, and I think you, we all know that if we don't repeat that mistake, but if we understand that the best way to maintain a country's sovereignty is to share it in the areas where we cannot act alone, whether it be the protection of the oceans, whether it be the environment, or whether it be pandemics. And I think that's the most important lesson. And some people, unfortunately, have got to be continually reminded of it. And that's what I hope we're doing today. Again, uh, Paul's put uh, uh, the, the position in the right uh, uh, context. Uh, we need to deal with these problems together or we will not be able to deal with them at all. Uh, I think it needs leadership. I think you need a vision of what kind of world you want to create and try to persuade people of it. It's got to be about hope for the future and not simply pessimism about what could go wrong. Uh, we've got to put before people, as um, some of the greatest figures in our generation, like Nelson Mandela did, a vision of hope for the future. And I think uh, we've got to show that teamwork, uh, cooperating together, is indeed the only way forward. You know, in the 1930s, when uh, you had a crisis and then you had protectionism and nations went into their own national silos and did their own thing uh, and went alone uh, in, in, in their policies. Winston Churchill, who was our prime minister later, said that the leaders then were resolved to be a resolute. They were adamant for drift. They were solid for fluidity and all powerful for impotence. And there is a danger that we have the same protectionist response now where nations retreat into their own silos and fail to understand that by going it alone, you cannot solve the problems that we face. I prefer to look to what happened after 1945 when people realized in their own words, as they created these new institutions, the IMF and the World Bank and the United Nations and the World Health Organization, they said prosperity, just as Paulus said, to be sustained has to be shared. And if you cannot share uh, the uh, solution uh, to problems that are global in their nature, then these problems will simply not be solved. And I remember, I think it was Harry Truman in the 1940s reading of him saying that the battle we are fighting is not between one country against another, it's not between one ethnic group and another, or between religions, or between 
uh, any uh, disparate uh, communities. The battle we are fighting against, he said, was against hunger, injustice, inequality, uh, uh, disease, and, and of course, illiteracy, which is one of the issues that I am concerned about as a UN envoy in education. And if we realize that uh, we've got a common interest in fighting these battles together, then I think we can persuade even the most ardent nationalists that none of the problems that they know exist in their own country are going to be properly solved unless we um, work together. And this disease, this coronavirus, is the most glaring example. If we cannot have multilateralism in health, when we know that if we don't eradicate the disease in every country, it will not be eradicated, uh, then we can't have multilateralism anywhere else. So this is a test case. It's our generation's rendezvous with destiny, if you like. It's our moment of truth. We've got to prove that we can work together to solve this problem that all of us face. Amen. Mr. Martin, Mr. Brown, th thank you so very much for, for sharing the, the richness of your experiences with us and certainly for reminding us um, of the importance that uh, of cooperation and that sovereignty is strengthened and valued through that collaboration and certainly a, a call to action uh, reminding us all that difficulties are, are best faced together no matter how big they may seem. Thank you both. It was a pleasure having such distinguished guests with us today. Thank you. Thank you.